The Future of Finance is Here podcast looks at the changing landscape of the Australian finance industry. Our industry is financing Australia's future, a future that will be driven by access and choice for consumers, embracing innovation and competition, and generating greater economic and therefore social participation for all Australians. AFIS CEO Diane Tate talks to industry leaders and extraordinary individuals about their experiences, good and bad, and how those experiences have shaped and continue to shape their contribution to our industry and Australia. Hello, and welcome to The Future of Finance is Here, AFIA's inaugural podcast series. Today, we'll be reflecting on the experiences and challenges posed by the global financial crisis in the late 2000s, the actions taken since by governments, financial regulators, and the finance industry to be better prepared for a crisis, and how the COVID-19 crisis is impacting Australia. Joining me for this timely discussion is Dr. John Laker, former APRA chairman from 2003 to 2014 and during the GFC. An economist by training, John had an extensive career in the Reserve Bank prior to his appointment to APRA. He also worked at the Commonwealth Treasury and the International Monetary Fund. In 2008, he was appointed an Officer of the Order of Australia for his services to financial regulation. John was appointed chairman of ING Australia. He's also the Deputy Chancellor of UTS, undertakes external advisory work for the IMF, and lectures part-time at the University of Sydney. Look, John, your experience in the epicentre of decision-making at the time of extreme unrest prior to, during, and after the GFC is invaluable. So we really thank you for joining us today. Look, thinking back to that time of the GFC in around 2007 and 2008, what was the initial response you saw from the Australian people, businesses and governments and regulators? And how do you think that compares to the response we've seen to COVID-19? Well, thanks, Diane. That's a very broad question. Let me just make some general points about the global financial crisis and the current pandemic we're in. It's interesting that in 2007, 2008, we had what historians are going to define as a, um, a sort of a seminal moment in the history of the 21st century when the global financial crisis struck. And yet within 12 or so years, we now have a much more severe event, which again will be seen as a defining moment of the 21st century. There are stark differences between those two crises, but there are some similarities. The stark difference, of course, is the global financial crisis, as the name suggests, was a financial crisis. It emanated in the financial sector and spilled over into the real sector. The pandemic, the health emergency and the economic crisis we're facing today has not emanated from the financial sector. That is a, a major difference. So that's the first of the differences between the, the two crises. Let me go back for a moment then to the global financial crisis. The epicentre of that crisis was in the United States and the US financial system. So how would an event like that, a crisis like that, spill over to a country like Australia? Well, there are three channels. The first is the financial channel, and we were hit through the financial channel very hard because our major banks lost access to international funding markets in a short period of time, and this was true around the globe. There was a complete erosion of trust in banks by banks themselves. The short circuit for that was the government guarantee, but at the time that was really the most severe impact, immediate impact of the events in the United States. 
We call that the fast and furious channel. The slow burn channel is the trade channel. When exports drop because markets overseas decline. In Australia, that was muted because China recovered quickly and we were enjoying minerals investment boom and minerals boom. The third effect is pervasive and very hard to quantify, and that's confidence. Australians in a global world were looking at what was happening offshore. There was nightly news coverage of runs on banks and unemployment queues and foreclosures of housing, and there was a substantial loss of confidence by consumers in Australia and investors in Australia which took some time to restore. But they were the three channels through which the global financial crisis hit Australia. And the policy responses were, at the time, aggressive monetary policy and fiscal policy. Aggressive, timely, imaginative. Let's move forward now to the current pandemic. As I said, it's not a financial crisis. It hasn't emanated in the financial sector. It's emanated because of a pernicious virus which has affected everybody. So how has this flowed through to Australia? Well, same three channels. The financial channel on this occasion was muted. There was a period in March and April where markets, financial markets were very volatile. There was a flight from risky assets. We all saw share markets crash. But we didn't see the pressure on liquidity that we saw in the GFC because central banks were quick to respond aggressive to respond, but most importantly because the banks themselves were in a good position on liquidity. They were holding out for liquidity. The trade channel, well, this has been pervasive and very severe. Uh, We've seen complete disruptions to global supply chains. We've seen markets closed down for commodities and services. Uh, We've seen a very strong demand effect working its way through where people communities have just not been able to spend. That's only part of the story. The real part of that story, though, is it's a supply shock. Governments have put economies into, as some have said, an induced coma to try and limit the spread of the the virus. And so we've got this very strong supply shock, borders closed, industries in lockdown, communities in lockdown, and the real effects of that are far more severe than they have been and they were in the global financial crisis, as severe as anything we know, have known since the Great Depression. And then there's the confidence factor. Confidence levels today are improving, but uh, at the worst in March and April and May, community sentiment in Australia was as low as it was in the GFC. Business sentiment much lower again. Both have improved, but they haven't regained the uh, levels they achieved before. So the first big difference is it's not a financial crisis. The second big difference is it's a supply shock, major supply shock, and that has a bearing on how governments respond and how policy can work. And the third big difference is the banks are not transmitting this shock. The banks are absorbing, cushioning the shock. And the reason they can do so, and they're doing it through the payment pauses in particular, the reason they can do so is because they came into the pandemic in very strong financial position because of all the various reforms that took place in response to the global financial crisis. So their liquidity levels, well above minimum requirements, their capital in the banking system is double what it was, tier one terms before the GFC struck. So 
the Australian banks and banks around the globe are able to carry a greater load. They are carrying the risk of elements of the community, very important elements of the community, the business sector and people with mortgages to ensure that activity can, can continue to sustain lending uh, as much as they can. And that, that is a big difference. And it certainly has had a bearing on the, the approach to policy. So just taking it a bit further, talking about, I guess, the lessons learned from the GFC, there's sort of several themes I'm taking from what you've just said. And one is that the liquidity being injected into the system through the term funding facility by the Reserve Bank to the ADIs has been critical. The Australian Office of Financial Markets, the AOFM, program to support smaller lenders through structured finance was a mechanism learnt from the GFC and available for this crisis and commenced early on for in this crisis. So there's two, I guess, sort of mechanisms that were there that were usefully seen in the GFC that have been brought to this crisis early. What other things do you think that regulators and governments and the industry learnt from the GFC that they could turn on quickly for this crisis? The major lesson was to have a strong financial system that is capable of providing intermediation through thick and thin. In the global financial crisis, the banks overseas transmitted the shocks. They amplified them, caused the real effects. In the pandemic, our banks are absorbing and cushioning those shocks. It's a very important difference, but it's because they have the wherewithal to do so. One of the other lessons from uh, the global financial crisis, but it took a while to emerge in this country, was the sort of the weaknesses of governance in, in financial institutions in many major markets and um, the sort of ethical failings that took place. Uh, that's a separate topic which we may get to later, but you know that has also encouraged work at the global level on topics like strengthened governance, improved remuneration arrangements. They are all part of the reforms that took place and Collectively, those reforms have put our financial system in, in very good shape going into the pandemic, and that's why they're carrying the load that the community is asking them to carry, and they're carrying it. So let's focus on a word you used just then, preparedness. Uh, one of the first projects I encountered you on, John, was the APRA pandemic preparedness work. Way back when we were thinking about swine flu and bird flu and all the other critters, in these situations, there is always a lot of preparation going on in the background to make sure that the financial system can withstand the changes that would otherwise be required in a crisis. I mean, what are your reflections on those plans now? Well, we always like to say in APRA that we were forward-looking. I don't think we appreciated just how prescient we were, but our information paper on pandemic planning was published in 2013. But the first stress test we did on pandemics, uh, and at the time, as you say, we were thinking of avian flu or that kind of pandemic was back in 2006. And when I reflect back, and I've had gone back to have a look at that uh, information paper, it addressed a lot of the issues which financial institutions have had to face today. First and foremost, how to protect the health and safety of your own staff in a pandemic. How do you set up working from home arrangements? Technology uplift is required to work from home. Importantly, how do you preserve controls and compliance frameworks in a virtual world? And then behind all of that, how do you maintain the culture of the organisation when it's so dispersed? And all of those were addressed in the information paper and I think our institutions have put them into practice perhaps much more quickly than anyone might have expected, but 
have done so very effectively. So that that's a tribute to the planning that has gone there. And it may have been collecting dust on the shelves, but that work was done and um, the thought processes, the thinking had gone into pandemic planning well before this struck. I wouldn't have wanted to start thinking about it from scratch. Thinking about what you've just said, is this a black swan event, you know, beyond what we could normally have expected? The giveaway to your question, Diane, is that Taleb himself, who coined the phrase black swan, does not think this is a black swan event. He probably is best placed to make that judgment. It certainly has had a severe impact. It's not clear whether you can normalise it in hindsight, but it is, it's not an extreme outlier because we've had pandemics in uh, the last century. Uh, we've had foretastes of a pandemic through bird flu and and, and SARS and Ebola in, in different countries, you know, the, and we've had plenty of warnings that the world could be vulnerable to this kind of uh, widespread virus attack. You know, I think it would be wrong to think of it as a black swan and throw your arms up and say, well, we couldn't have done much about it. We knew something like this could have happened. We've had plenty of warnings and preparations were put in place. They often say about military plans that no good military plan survives first contact with the enemy. And so this is a real-world test of those plans, and you know they may not have all worked the way they were intended to. But certainly in my experience with ING Bank, we've been able to transition to a, a virtual world very, very seamlessly, yeah, and, and major banks have done that as well, other financial institutions likewise. So that's a tribute to the, the thought that went into that planning. But I, I don't think it's a black swan event. It certainly is an event that's going to define us for years to come. I've been you know, having chats with friends and family saying there'll be many PhDs written about COVID-19 and we're living history. The fallout economically globally is going to be hard, but the swift action taken by central banks and governments has meant that we have avoided a GFC type event as you've talked about so far. One of the things I've noticed around this crisis is the significant collaboration and cooperation between governments and business. We saw this through the GFC, but perhaps I didn't see it so swiftly. Maybe it was because the GFC took a little while to unfold, whereas the, this crisis was such an immediate shock that everyone was forced to come together. But that collaboration really has put us in a very strong place to be able to manage how this crisis unfolds. Some of that do you think was learnings from GFC or some of that do you think is just the way that you know Australians kind of come together? Because we can see Australia in a far stronger place than other countries around the world dealing with this crisis. Diane, the sense of force majeure, when you have a, a shock of this dimension, this severity, it does bring the community together and it does bring policymakers and business together and very visibly and very promptly because of the scale of the, the fallout. You know, this is a has a very severe economic impact still working its way through. But I, I wouldn't downplay the collaboration that was taking place in the global financial crisis. And I can illustrate it with reference to the work that was done on the government guarantee. Um, there had been proposals before the Council of Financial Regulators about a deposit guarantee. There had been work done on that. We were well prepared for that the possibility of a guarantee. It then came on very quickly because of the freezing of international funding markets. But I well remember a weekend where you know, the Council of Financial Regulator Members, Treasury ASIC, RBA, APRA, were all working extremely hard to bring this forward on the Monday to put that in place because we would be the first market that opened 
on that week after a very bleak annual meeting at the IMF. But that that's a, a story, first of all, of preparatory work that had been developed under both governments to look at the role of a government guarantee for deposits and more broadly wholesale funding in the crisis, but also the ability to collaborate and work very closely quickly, as we had to over that weekend. So there was always a good working relationship between the policymakers. I wasn't privy to what the discussions were going on between government and business. Uh, I was focused on the financial system. But I think it's not just the crisis, the COVID crisis, that it's brought business and government closer together. I think the bushfires and the drought have had that same effect of the community accepting that this is a challenge for the community. To have three challenges like that in succession is tough. It's tough. It really has tested the uh, the metal of the Australian community, but it has responded magnificently. That's a really well-made point about community coming together. Um, I think over the recent years, we've seen a debate about whether it's economy versus society. And I think um, what this crisis is certainly showing is, is that that's two sides of the coin, that economy and society are integral to each other. Taking a, a little bit of a different direction now and, and onto the questions around culture uh, and governance, Reflecting on the findings of the report that uh, was commissioned by APRA into the Commonwealth Bank, which you were the chair of the panel, and the subsequent self-assessments done by other major institutions, as well as the findings of the Royal Commission, if COVID hadn't hit earlier this year, what do you think would have been the priorities for the industry? And, and you know, what do you think the industry needs to really focus on when bandwidth returns? Had we not had COVID nineteen, we would still have had we would have had the words of the Royal Commission in our ears loudly and painfully. I think the words that I remember most was, you know, why is all this misconduct taking place? And he answered, you know, the answer too often is greed, the pursuit of short term profits at the expense of basic standards of honesty. I've almost got that etched on my head because that was really a very damning indictment of culture and some elements of the financial system. And the response to that is ongoing. It's not complete. It's, it's work in progress. And I've said in, in public speeches, not that I give many these days, that it's a journey. There's no destination. It's a journey. We will be on the journey of pursuing more effective customer-focused cultures in financial institutions for a long time. The immediate challenge, though, is to support the community through this phase. And that's an interesting challenge for the culture of an organisation. So it's bringing home in this one episode, one, this one difficult time, you know, what institutions stand for. The Australian banking system is being asked to support lending, to be very careful about the impacts of precipitate foreclosures on housing markets and housing prices. They are being asked to take particular care of the interests of their customers and they're also asked to keep the bank strong and safe. Now, this is a very delicate balancing act, but at the moment uh, and for some time to come, the focus will be on addressing the, the difficulties facing certain customers with mortgages and certain business customers and how banks cope with that, how they get that balance right will be a very important determinant of what they see as their purpose. One of the lessons I've taken out of 
the Hank Royal Commission report, a number of other reports that have been written around the same time. We're not the only country that has been going through this kind of self-analysis is the lack of clarity about what is the purpose of a financial institution. And it would have seemed a fairly obvious question that would have been addressed years ago, but it hasn't been. It has now been looked at very carefully by boards and by senior management. What do we stand for? What is the balance between profitability and meeting the needs of customers? Is it a trade-off? In the long term, it shouldn't be. To take this a little bit further, John, uh, as chairman and member of a board of a financial institution, how are you thinking about the role of the board and the role of management, culture across the institution and the role that that institution can play at the moment? You know, there are going to be inevitably an adjustment in the economy. How are you thinking about that in terms of your role at the moment and your financial institution? The question of culture is It's always difficult to actually say, well, what is the culture of an organisation? And a regulator can't turn up and be told, well, you know, this is our culture. So we look at an ING in particular at various elements of um, we place great focus on speaking up, calling out and responding. We are subject to an ING worldwide code of conduct. Is the organisation transparent? Are people psychologically safe in calling out uh, mistakes or misconduct? Is there an appropriate response? All of that is quite important to us. Certainly one lesson from the Hain Royal Commission is how are we treating our customers? One of the issues that was raised in the CBA report, and I don't want to dwell on it, but it's a general point, is what kind of information goes to the board about customers? And often the information was about average responses or net promoter scores, where the real story is in the tail. How long has a customer been waiting to get redress? How long have you taken to elevate or escalate an issue? Um, Have you satisfied the customer in a fair and appropriate way? That kind of information tended not to get to boards. It is now, um, and it is in our case as well. So customer focus is given a, a lens, in our case through a special a customer experience committee set up in the last couple of years and through regular reporting to the board, not just of how the bank is travelling on net promoter scores, that's only part of the stories, but you know, are we delivering appropriate products in a fair way? It would be remiss of me not to ask you a question about the Banking and Finance Oath. Um, you are the chairman of that uh, initiative. The vision of the oath is a banking and finance industry that meets the community's needs and has its full confidence thereby fulfilling its integral role in society. That's a big statement. How do you think... It's a very ambitious statement, but it should be ambitious. Absolutely. So how do you think the industry is going during this crisis? How do you think its leaders are performing? Because this oath is not about institutional performance. It's about individual commitment and performance. Yes. it's For your listeners, I'll just go very... Uh, briefly back to the origins of the Banking and Finance Oath. It was written by industry leaders um, several years ago and it was in response to what was happening offshore. It was a concern on their part back in 2012-13 when this was being developed that Australians are not like that, that our banking system is not like what we were seeing in other countries. Uh, And the oath was conceived in part as a way of individuals in the industry standing up to be counted, saying these are the positive values by which I want to lead my professional life and 
if somebody's really showing integrity be how they would lead their personal life as well. Little did they expect that within a couple of years, this became a very lively vision because we were suffering in Australia from the same egregious misconduct that we saw offshore. So the oath became much more relevant as a starting point or as a sort of the moral compass for individuals. It is still relevant. Our major CEOs and executives are committed to it. It's not always easy to cascade that commitment all the way through organisations. And as I say, and as you've highlighted, Diane, it is a personal commitment. But all cultures, in the end, start with the individuals. And I've said before that a culture that is not founded on individuals with virtue and integrity is a culture built on clay. Plato talked about four cardinal virtues. Uh, temperance, justice, wisdom, and courage. And I've always liked to refer back to that because courage, the willingness to speak up, to take the risk of opprobrium from your peers or from your seniors, but to call out misconduct, is fundamental to the oath. And if we have individuals within industry who are willing to speak up, willing to ask the should we question, and if we have management above them who are willing to respond, because there's got to be an answer, there's got to be a consequence to those behaviours, then you know the industry is going to get in better shape over time. And as a signatory to the oath myself, I was pleased when the AFIA board and ourselves as an organisation had a conversation around what our strategic goal should be. And some of the very important words in that is is to drive a culture of integrity, transparency and fairness, mm. which I see is very aligned as an industry to the principles of this individual commitment. Yeah. So my final question for you today, John, is looking into the future. Um, I don't think anyone's got a crystal ball, but I'm going to see whether you've got it hidden, uh, hidden away. We are still in the middle of this crisis, perhaps even in the eye of the storm, some are suggesting where we are having an economic recovery in Australia, but we're certainly seeing things occurring overseas in other markets that should have us thinking about what that means for us as a nation. What do you see in three, five, ten years' time for the future of Australia? Well, you're right to say that uh, none of us have a crystal ball. What we are going to see for the next couple of years is the unwinding of this major economic impact. If we are bold enough to look at a world in which COVID-19 has been tamed and we've got the recovery well and truly established, I'm an optimist. I'm, I'm an Australian who thinks this is a country with great resource potential. Um, you know, it's it's a harmonious community. It's it's a vibrant democracy. It has challenges. You know, do we suggest climate change is one of those? It has it has major challenges. The question marks now about whether population growth can resume, or how quickly that will take. But you put all those together, we have enormous potential. We have a very strong public sector, very strong policy makers, uh, governments who over, over the course of a long period of time have committed to taking what actions are necessary to do with major crises. I cross to other parts of the world and I think, you know, I'm very happy I'm Australian. I'm an optimist too. I think we are in the lucky country. Hmm. That might be a Pollyanna-ish answer from a regulator who's supposed to be Dow or ex-regulator who's supposed to be dour and um but I, i'm responding as an australian i think you know we've got all the potential in the world we've got a difficult recovery path to negotiate but we're on that path i appreciate you making your time for today thank you thank you Diane. it's been a pleasure 
Thank you. The future of finance is here. That much we know. Be sure to tune in to our next episode, where we continue the conversation on creating change in the finance industry with the people that are making change happen. Let us know what you think. Leave a review or rating and tell us if there is someone you'd like to hear from or a topic you'd like covered that you think will shape the future of our industry. I'm Mel Carpenter, Executive Director, Member Services, and I'm thrilled to have you joining this series with us. If you like what you've heard, head to afia.asn.au to find out more or subscribe via your favourite podcast app.